Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we reviewed some of the history of Plains Indigenous nations in Canada, including the Métis, and their relationship with the British government. Today, we'll pick up with the newly created federal government of Canada continuing those relationships and how it led to rebellion. Let's begin. Here on HI101 with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hey. And we've been talking about the Red River Rebellions, or rather, we have, yeah. everything leading up to it so far. Yes. We haven't really gotten too uh, deep into the rebellions themselves. And it's actually interesting because rebellion is a little bit of a misnomer in certain ways, as we're going to see. Like even knowing that, I went ahead and titled the episode that. Mm-hmm. There, there are historians that have suggested that it's really only called that because it sounds good. It's not actually a very accurate title, <laughs> and it wasn't really called that until basically until the, the entire thing was over, um, which is kind of interesting. But it's just uh, flashy use of alliteration. Yeah, pretty much. But we spent a lot of time talking about the relationship between uh, what would become the government of Canada and ind- indigenous peoples in mostly in what, what is now Manitoba and the Canadian prairies um, leading up to now, especially the, um, the fur trade, the uh, Buffalo hunt and uh, what was known as the Pemmican war. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where we're picking things up today. I mentioned at the very end of the last episode that a lot of the uh, a lot of the conflict that we're going to be talking about comes from the fact that the Canadian government wanted to bring British Columbia into the Dominion of Canada and needed a railroad in order to make that happen. That's not the only reason that they want uh, access to that land in the Red River Colony, but it's a, it's a big part of it. The other problem that they had there was the fact that the United States was trying to or, or was was very aggressively expanding west and they were worried about it expanding northwards as well and mm-hmm. while they had negotiated that 49th parallel as a border they were worried it wouldn't be uh, respected all that well more like guidelines yeah exactly <laughs> so let's uh let's take a little bit of a closer look at sort of the relationship between uh canada and indigenous peoples in that period between the pemmican wars and canada canada's confederation there's a massive shift in sort of the opinion of the Canadian government towards Indigenous peoples in this period of time. Because as we've seen so far, for the most part, these relationships have been negotiated very much on a, I'd love to say equal, but not quite, but at least a nation to nation sort of level. There's yeah. a lot of treaties, there's a lot of um, give and take involved in these agreements. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they haven't uh, respected them, there's been significant enough pushback that for the most part, Canada and, and Britain has actually acquiesced to what they've agreed to in the past. There's a there's a real shift in that attitude uh, in Canada, starting with, for example, in 1844, there's a uh, there's a 
commission headed uh, by a, a Charles Bagot. It's the Bagot Commission, which refers to, and again, this is we talked about it the last time. There's there's certain terminology that's very outdated, but it's actually written into Canadian law to this day. So, unfortunately, mm-hmm. accurate. Yeah. Um, so in in this commission, it's uh, the Indians are referred to as half civilized, and he recommends assimilation as uh, best policy moving forward for the Canadian government. Yep. So we're just like starting. <laughs> I off. made a face there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're starting off strong on this one. And by 1847, the the recommendation of uh, or or made to the Canadian government for the best way to proceed with this, made by the way by a Doctor Adolphus Augustus Ryerson, uh, after whom Ryerson University is named. Oh, okay. Who is an educational consultant? Uh, the, the recommendation for actually accomplishing this uh, assimilation is through a, a boarding school model, removing. Uh, indigenous children from their families' homes and educating them away from their traditions. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a, an idea that's going to have some very very terrible ramifications in Canada's future. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a little um, controversy over the naming of Ryerson University in the last few years, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is where it stems from. Makes sense. <laughs> yep. In 1857, uh, by this point, the province of Canada is is kind of the way that things are named the the what is now Ontario and Quebec and Canada changes names a bunch of times but right now it's a province of Canada unifying both that happened after the uh, 1837 rebellions they decided the best way to keep all the French people in line is to uh, make one big province that incorporates both English and French mm-hmm. um, that way they won't be a majority in any <laughs> uh, political body great go British Empire <laughs> um, so the, re- the recommendation by the um, or sorry the the legislation put in place in 1857 by the province of Canada is uh, what's called the gradual civilization act yeah wow more, more faces one one thing that's very useful about all of this stuff is that they are really not trying to hide anything in the language yeah that I was using. gonna say that's like very on the nose <laughs> yes yeah they, they really weren't shy about it the uh, sort of colonial attitude towards the best course as they saw it for indigenous relations is is really being worn on their sleeve here. Mm -hmm. So the Gradual Civilization Act basically enshrines uh, an idea that's going to become policy for uh, the the country of Canada when it becomes independent. It enshrines this idea of a trade-off of enfranchisement, so political personhood, basically the ability to uh, participate in civic life with any of the concessions that have been given to legal status Indians through the treaties that have been been made over the years. So basically in the Gradual Civilization Act, uh, what they do is they say, well, we will give you all the rights of a full citizen and a land grant of 50 acres that's being carved off of reserve land that's been guaranteed to indigenous people, as well as some some uh, money. But you'll you'll lose your Indian status, so you right. will no longer be a status Indian. You no longer receive any of the things that Britain has promised to indigenous peoples in exchange for uh, either use of these lands or uh, or or whichever other guarantees have been made. And the reaction in Ontario to all of this is outraged by indigenous people there is yeah as far as i could tell there was exactly one person who volunteered for the enfranchisement mm-hmm. process which was weirdly enough a, a shock to these legislators they actually thought people would really want to take 
advantage of this. They really thought yeah. that they would want to become uh, Canadian citizens with no Indian status. Yeah. And I mean, it went so poorly that eventually the, you know, they, they would find uh, ways to make the enfranchisement process mandatory uh, throughout the years, just to try and get as many people off of Indian status, to try and give as few repayments as possible to reduce the amount of Indian reserve land, mm -hmm. uh, all of that. Because it's not just that they're giving them a plot of land off the reserve. They're taking that land from the reserve and giving them to, uh, giving it to this person as an individual. Yeah. It's really insidious. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, this is going to exist in, in multiple forms for a, a very, very long time, much longer than we'd probably care to admit to. Mm -hmm. The way that people with Indian status are treated under uh, Canadian law at this point is is they're, they're not considered legal persons until 1951. Wow, and you know you're not you're not able to vote in a federal election until 1960 uh, unless That's you renounce unless you uh, renounce your Indian status. Yeah. Now, to be fair, Canada was never really good with uh, enfranch enfranchisement in general. Mm -hmm. um, women didn't get the vote until 1929 federally, and that yeah. involved uh, a court case, colloquially known as the Persons case, that had to be advanced to the British Supreme Court or rather the the Court of the, the Privy Council. So above Canada's Supreme Court before they were actually granted the status of personhood, yeah. um, legal personhood. I mean, before that, they're considered more like minors. Yeah. So we, we didn't always do great with stuff like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 a long time before we, we lose that idea of Indigenous people not having uh, full personhood under Can Canadian law. Mm -hmm. And that's going to uh, carry, carry forward past uh, Confederation. But that's just some of the the background that we need to consider when looking at what happens when Canada becomes a country in 1867 and how it applies those laws moving forward. Meanwhile, the Plains people in general aren't really doing that great in this period for a number of reasons. Number one, there's a lot of uh, diseases running through these populations in the mid-19th century. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, outbreaks of smallpox, which historically have been really dangerous for indigenous peoples. There's also a lot of tuberculosis, which is a really dangerous disease at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And there's substandard medical care uh, available to these people. So it's uh, especially harmful to the populations. A lot of people end up dying from all of this, which is, is really difficult to keep a self-sustaining community when so many people are sick or dying. For sure. But far more important than that is the collapse of the buffalo hunt. And mm -hmm. this is a really important thing to understand about, and not just in Canada, but also in the United States, because a lot of what we're about to talk about actually happens in the United States as a consequence of the U.S. government. But when you're talking about herds of buffalo, they don't really care about state lines yeah. and what happens to the buffalo herd in general is going to happen throughout the entire buffalo herd. So. The buffalo hunt for a lot of these people, and, and again, we are talking about bison, but the, the names get switched back and forth quite a bit uh, in this period of time. The buffalo hunt for a lot of these people is a, is a spiritual act. It's a sacred act as well as an economic one. Mm -hmm. So the way that these animals are being used for the most part by indigenous nations is, you know, as, as cliche as it sounds, it's the whole like use every part of the, the buffalo sort yeah. of um, stereotype. In a lot of cases, that's really true. And it's it's not only for spiritual reasons, also because it's a really useful animal in, in a lot of senses. Um, not only is bison meat really healthy, like it's really low fat, really high protein. Uh, you can keep a lot of people going on on bison meat for a really long time. Mm. But the leather is extremely tough, mm. uh, really useful. Um, the hides are really warm. And beyond that, with sort of the emergence of the Industrial Revolution in North America and, and in Europe, 
there's new uses being found for a lot of this stuff that you know wouldn't have been thought of by indigenous peoples for example when you're talking about like machine belts like belts that run through uh, rollers and things like that mm-hmm. bison leather is really strong and it works really well for that so a lot of huh. these machines are running on bison leather belts because wow. it's much much tougher than cow leather okay yeah bison bones you grind them up and it makes really good fertilizer Really? Like extremely good fertilizer. And bone fertilizer is is used in a lot of cases, but bison have a lot of bones. They're very big (laughs) animals. Yeah. As useful as all this stuff is, demand starts getting really, really high for all of this stuff. And you don't only have indigenous uh, populations hunting bison for commercial purposes, although lots did, and especially Mm -hmm. Métis. You also have uh, non-indigenous people hunting for very specific economic reasons. And what you get from that is a far more industrialized version of the buffalo hunt, Mm -hmm. where people are going for only hides where you discovered that like a hide you know a single buffalo hide could be worth three dollars at the time a Mm -hmm. really good one could be as much as fifty dollars if it was uh, unbroken in the right way which is a massive like that's more than a full day's pay easily that's way more than people could make say farming Mm -hmm. and so they'd kill buffalo they'd strip their hide and they'd leave them there to rot and and this is like extremely distressing for indigenous nations who are, you know, spiritually tied to the hunt as yeah. well as economically tied. They're going, they're they're like children. They're killing for sport. They're, yeah. you know, what what are they doing? Kind of thing. The other thing you have going into place is uh, at this per- in this period of time you have uh, railroads being built across the interior, and bison are so big. And mm-hmm. so sturdy that if you hit one with a, a train, the train's going to lose. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, the buffalo is not going to come out well either, but it will yeah. se- like, it'll severely damage a train. Uh, and, and so the, uh, the rail companies hated having these things around. And I think something that people don't understand about bison, because you see them sort of like standing around looking a little, you know, dopey, mm-hmm. is they're really strong. They're really fast and they can jump really high. Yeah, I think they must be a lot bigger than I'm imagining them to oh, be okay so like, i used to think they were a, a full-grown bison is it can be up to like six feet high at the shoulder they're like six to nine feet long uh not including the tail wow. um yeah they can be over a ton because i was thinking like a cow or something no they're bigger than cows <laughs> yeah they're bigger than cows wow okay yeah what's more they can run at like 60 kilometers an hour when they get going oh wow and they can jump up to six feet high Wow. Yeah. They, these are not animals. That's that really high for with. like an animal of that size. Yeah. It's massive. It's, yeah. it's huge. These things are like, that's the thing you think of a, ca- a cow and you, you know, you put in like a three foot barbed wire fence yeah. and you'll probably get most of them to stick around. Yeah. And I think too, because like anytime I think I've seen bison, they've been like out like in fields. Mm-hmm. So they look obviously smaller than they are if you're like up close. But oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a reason you don't let people get close to buffalo. Yeah. Um, they today in national parks in the U.S., bison kill more people than bears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, they're just big. They get going. They'll they'll run you over. They're very, yeah. very big and very strong. So the the uh, the rail uh, lines start promoting uh, these hunting trips where they would take people out on train cars, find herds of bison Mm -hmm. and basically let them shoot them out the window of the train (laughs) just to kill off these herds because they were so damaging to the, to the rail because these things are so big and so strong. Like we started saying before, you can't just put a fence up around the rail because they can Mm -hmm. jump over it. Mm -hmm. If they can see field on another side of the fence, they'll try and knock it down. Yeah. Fence ain't no thing. (laughs) Um, today the way that they fence bison in is with steel fences set into concrete Ideally, they should be 20 feet high. Wow. And they should have interlocking slats so that they can't see through them. Wow, that's intense. Yeah. Anything else, and they'll try and get through. Yeah. Yeah. 
people are killing all these uh, bison off of train cars. There's bison hunting tournaments where people will see how many they can kill in a day. Oh, goodness. The way that bison work is a little bit different than a lot of herd animals. Because they're so big, they don't really have a lot of natural predators. So, you know, you see a nature show like a a cheetah chases down an antelope or something like that. Right. The rest of the herd is gone. Yeah. An adult bison doesn't really have any major predators, Mm -hmm. at least by, you know, uh, modern times. So really, uh, predators only go after young bison and usually sickly ones. Mm -hmm. So their defense mechanism, if a bison is hurt or sick or whatever, is the herd gathers around them to protect them. Mm -hmm. Because like you got a pack of wolves coming for them and and you just kind of circle around the thing that they're coming for. They're not. Yeah, they have no chance. Yeah, no. So so that's their natural inclination, which means when you shoot a bison, all the other bison just stay there. Mm -hmm. In fact, they get in tighter. So it's really easy to kill a bunch of them at the Uh. time. Yeah. That's kind of sad. Yeah. What's more, there's a U.S. government policy of buffalo slaughter. Really? Yes. Part of it is the the, the the rail line's interests are important economically to the U.S. government. Part of it is that settlement is a really important part of uh, uh, for uh, uh, federal policy. Mm-hmm. And bison are on land that would be really great for cattle. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you want okay, cattle yeah. ranchers to settle out there, you need space for them. And you can't have buffalo eating all the... Uh, all the grass on those lands. So let's get rid of them. What's more, there are a lot of people in the U.S. Uh, Army that recognize the fact that indigenous people depend on buffalo as a food source and an economic source. Mm-hmm. And there's been attempts over the 19th century to engage directly in warfare with these nations. And it's, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but they found them uh, more difficult to eradicate than they would have expected. Right. And there are certain officers that have noted the fact that, well, buffalo are a lot easier to kill than people. So let's kind of cut them off at the source. How much this is an intentional policy is still a little bit up for the debate. Mm-hmm. But the fact that this is a is something at the forefront of these people's minds is not. It's it's well documented. Right. All of this has a number of really detrimental effects, obviously, on on uh, indigenous nations. For example, intertribal conflict uh, increases as resources diminish. Mm-hmm. Uh, the less buffalo there are, the, the fewer there are to hunt. And if you're trying to hunt the same herd as someone else, you're going to get into conflict. Yeah. Nations are forced to take bad deals with the government in return for food. They're literally starving and are sometimes forced to sell land to the U.S. government in exchange for short-term relief for famine, mm-hmm. um, which puts them at a really detrimental uh, position for uh, negotiations. And this is the period in which you see a lot of the uh, Great Plains uh, nations lose land to the federal government. Right. There's a spiritual effect here. I mean, the bison hunt was an intrinsic part of these people's spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. There's really sad stories after the buffalo are more or less wiped out of of, um, them basically trying to perform buffalo hunt uh, rituals on cows, which is just not the same thing. And I don't know, that that one kind of chokes me up a little, I'll be honest. Yeah, it's it's just not the same. And and they, they felt the same way. There's also an ecological effect. The Great Plains, like you, you kind of think of it, it's like, okay, big grassy fields, whatever. You know, those those ecosystems aren't that simple. Mm-hmm. And there's a really big difference. Well, there's a lot of big differences between <laughs> bison and, and, and cattle. But one of the big differences is that bison graze selectively and they'll, they'll eat certain plants and leave other plants. Hmm. Cows will basically just eat everything. And what ends up happening is that rather than cultivating the, the, the plains, you, you kind of strip everything out. And the result is that 
since uh, or in the last 150 years or so, the Great Plains have actually lost about a third of the topsoil that they had back then. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, there's even speculation that the, the Dust Bowl effect in the 1930s, mm-hmm. you know, during the Depression was in part caused by this transition from bison to cattle because cattle use a lot more water. Right. They take less care of the topsoil. They they strip the cultivation, which leads to a lack of diversity in, uh, in plant species. Again, a little bit of speculation here, but it's kind of like, well, it, it would make it, it sense. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah, like it pans out. In the late 18th century, the estimates for buffalo population in North America was about 60 million. And their range stretched from all the way from Africa to the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. By the late 18, by the 1880s, there were less than a thousand left in the wild. My goodness. It was an incredibly devastating event that happened. And we probably shouldn't talk about it as an event that happened. It's something that was deliberately uh, done. I'm not sure anyone believed that it would result in the entire collapse and near extinction of a, of a species, but mm-hmm. there was a lot of intentionality behind what went into it. Um, there's about 500,000 bison today. About 15,000 of them are considered fully wild. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are crossbred with cattle at this point. So, you know, in terms of uh, genetic purity, there's a lot of... It, it was a massive uh, uh, bottleneck for the population, right? So they've got mm-hmm. genetic issues, all yeah. sorts of stuff. They'll never be quite the same, I don't think. But there there have been in- uh, attempts to intru- uh, reintroduce them. They're all just very, very recent. Mm-hmm. So the Métis that we talked about last time had industry based on two uh, really major industries, bison and fur, and now neither really exist anymore. And they're yeah. in a much, much harder place. So they depended mostly on farming, on kind of the same sort of subsistence settlement life that most uh, uh, Canadian settlers would have uh, lived at this point in time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the time of the uh, of Canadian Con- Confederation in the 1860s, the Red River colony that we left last time, it's still going to be mostly Métis. There are still the remnants of those... Uh, Scottish settlers under the the Selkirk expedition, but there's not a majority of them, although they're fairly vocal in the community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've kind of entered a sort of, um, I don't want to say they're in a great position necessarily, but Mm -hmm. they're trying to figure out some way of getting by. And then they find out that the Canadian government is planning on basically coming in and taking that land and doing with it what they will. Yeah. And... They've heard about all these, uh, about all the ways that they've treated indigenous people who are actually within their territory, and they know what it's like. They're also very worried about what the United States could do if they came in. The Red River Colony is in a really precarious position in terms of its future at this point. So while the day-to-day life isn't necessarily bad for most of the, these Métis, mm-hmm. um, the future prospects are, are a really stressful point of, of life for them. So when the new Canadian government enters negotiations with the Hudson Bay Company to acquire all of Rupert's land. They're looking, as we said, to establish that railroad, but also keep the United States at bay. Yeah. And so there's there's some understandable uh, motivations behind it. But the real issue at the heart of it is that they don't own the land, which is something we talked about a lot last time, right? All that the Hudson Bay Company actually holds is a charter to a trade monopoly in this region for anyone who is actually subject to... Uh, the British crown, Mm -hmm. which is not the same thing as actually holding title to the land. The short story of the transfer of Rupert's land to the government of Canada basically goes something like this. It's a three-sided transaction. In 
November 19th of 1869, the Hudson Bay Company surrenders their charter. Basically, the Canadian government has made a strong enough case to both the company and to the British crown that it's in the best interest of not only Canada, but also the British Empire to uh, put this uh, this land under Canada, uh, Canadian control mm-hmm. um, for unity of the empire, for settlement opportunities for Canadian citizens to keep the United States at bay. That's still a real uh, concern. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about last time the fact that the uh, uh, the Confederate uh, side in the Civil War had been supported by the British, uh, you know, kind of uh, unofficially, and they were worried about future uh, invasion by the North after they won. Mm-hmm. So they made this case. The Hudson Bay Company surrenders their charter over Rupert's land to the British Crown. So they give it back, basically. Mm-hmm. Then on the 23rd of June, 1870, Rupert's Land is incorporated into Canada through an amendment to the British North America Act. That's the, the Canadian Act of uh, Constitution. And in that act, they take possession of this land under the condition that it make treaties with any affected indigenous tribes to ensure a peaceful transfer. So they're given the land, but also the responsibility to negotiate in good faith with indigenous people. Right. And... Then in uh, 1870, as a separate transaction, the government of Canada pays the Hudson Bay Company uh, $1.5 million, which today would be a little over $30 million U.S., uh, as compensation for having relinquished their their charter. All sounds pretty simple. (laughs) That's not really how it goes down on the ground. Mm -hmm. The Métis were very wary of this coming land transfer it was kind of rumored to be be happening because I mean they don't necessarily have access to what's happening behind closed doors yeah. in London and in Ottawa, um, but you hear things, right? Mm-hmm. They're concerned about land ownership, which they don't actually have proper legal titles to under British law, even though you know they they own the land; it's their land. Um, they're having sovereignty imposed on them, right? So they're they're worried about not having that piece of paper. They they know that there's a certain aspect of having to play by the other party's rules here. Yeah, for sure. They're also concerned about religious freedoms as Mm -hmm. well as language rights. Keep in mind that the majority of these Métis are French-speaking, and a lot of them, because of their French fathers back however many generations, are actually uh, Roman Catholic and quite strong Roman Catholic rather than uh, practicing traditional indigenous uh, religions. Mm -hmm. So they're worried not only about their sort of rights as free indigenous people, but also their rights as uh, French Roman Catholics, because there are some guarantees for uh, freedom of religion and for freedom of language under the British North America Act when Canada is created. Mm -hmm. But it's fairly explicitly restricted to Quebec. Mm, And it doesn't do a lot for uh, uh, protecting French outside of Quebec. Um, So they're worried that they're going to come in and basically be forced to speak English and not practice Catholicism anymore. This Scottish minority welcomes it. They're a, a, an English Protestant minority. They want mm-hmm. an English Protestant uh, system put in place. That would be quite yeah. quite agreeable for them. <laughs> of course. Um, they want expansion. They want more English settlers. They want Anglicization of the government. They want a British-style government, all of that stuff. So, but, but they're very much in the minority at this point. All of this goes south when Canada's Minister of Public Works, uh, it's a man named William McDougall, he, along with a, a Montreal politician, Georges-Étienne Cartier, between the two of them basically organized the entire Rupert's Land uh, transfer on behalf of the government of Canada. Okay. And McDougal is very excited about this whole thing. Like, he sees this as a resounding political success. He sees mm-hmm. this as a big win for Canada. And he's so excited that he decides to jump the gun a little bit. 
and he sends a surveying team to the colony before any of these transfers have happened. So he sends the team in August of 1869. This is before Hudson Bay has uh, relinquished their their uh, charter on the land. Ooh. So this survey team has zero legal authority to be there. Yeah. Now, all they're doing is surveying the land. All they're doing. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but this is loaded with meaning because, number one, it's the first, like, concrete sign that they have that they're about to be incorporated into Canada. Yeah, like the subtext is pretty obvious there. And then there's another really symbolic aspect of this, which is that they start plotting all this land out into square lots. Mm. Now, you remember from way back in like grade seven history, the talk about like square English Mm -hmm. lots versus the long, uh, thin French style lots. Um, Mm. Well, the Red River Colony was uh, divided into French style long, thin lots. And this is seen two ways. Number one, it's seen as an attack on their French culture. Yeah. And number two, it's seen as an attack on their indigenous sovereignty. Yeah, because absolutely. You're, 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 seeing, you're seeing someone come in and both ignore their, their tacit land claims and culturally fly in the face of the way that they've just sort of collectively decided to organize their society and their, their, um, and their land. Yeah. Uh, this is a problem. Yep. <laughs> this is a very big problem. And the thing is, McDougall was warned about all of this. He was told that this was going to go badly. He was warned by the Catholic bishop of the region. He was warned by the Anglican bishop of the region. He was warned by the the governor of uh, Rupert's Land from the Hudson Bay Company. They all told him, they're going to hate this. Like, you can't, you can't do this without, number one, some protection, number two, some legal authority. Yeah. Did they just, like, did he just not take their advice seriously? Or was he just... Like, why did he go ahead with that, given all the warnings he had? I think part of it is this um, excitement about kind of closing a deal on something that he's been working very hard at. Yeah. I think a lot of it, too, is that there is, as we've seen, a very pervasive political culture of not necessarily taking indigenous peoples all that seriously. This land is presented to the rest of Canada as virgin land. Mm -hmm. There's this concept that is, is thrown around a lot when discussing relationships between indigenous peoples and uh colonizers uh, it's called terras nullius okay. or ter- terra nullius i forget which one i'll have to check but uh, this idea of no one lives here it's empty land yeah and it's not there's it's not people, empty land there's people living here they're using yeah. it um you know there's there's this idea that oh you know you look out and it's like well no one's actually turned this into farmland or no one's built a house here therefore it's not being used well no that's that's buffalo habitat you need that plains uh, area here for the buffalo to thrive and you need those buffalo to thrive in order to have food but because it's not being used exactly the way that these people would prefer like envision it, to, it and because they don't have a piece of paper saying i so-and-so own these lands you know uh, you know having survey surveyed lines and all of that stuff then then it doesn't count it's it's very ethnocentric and it's it's going to cause a lot of issues yeah uh, with these relationships between colonial groups and indigenous ones yeah it's a very like tunnel vision way of Mm -hmm. like understanding what it looks like or what it means to like occupy a space yes basically well and mcdougall is very much like in that that political elite that you know for example, you know, put into place the Gradual Civilization Act. Like he's mm-hmm. not really concerned about all of this. So no, these these warnings are unheeded. He's basically seeing this as, well, I'm going to have the authority within two months. Like, what are they going to do about it, basically? Right. So enter into our story, Louis Riel. Louis Riel was born 1844 in the Red River Colony, and his family was fairly popular in the area for standing fairly firm on uh, land claims in terms of what had been agreed to with the uh, well British government at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they were well known. They were also well known uh, to be extremely devout Catholics. They were, uh, you know, tight with the church. There was a lot of uh, donations. There was a lot of uh, personally knowing leadership in the church in the region. Right. So Riel himself was educated from a fairly early age in the church. Um, he was actually sent off at the age of 13 to uh, Montreal to be trained for the priesthood. He was he was personally uh, kind of earmarked for the priesthood by the bishop. Okay. Sent back to Montreal to get a proper French Catholic relation uh, uh, education to to eventually enter the priesthood. Mm-hmm. So extremely well educated, uh, learned to speak English fluently as well as as French. He did eventually lose interest in in uh, the priesthood after the death of his father. Kind of meandered about a little bit in in Montreal uh, and ended up working as a law a law clerk for quite a while. So he became quite familiar both with um, sort of the ins and outs of religion as well as uh, the mm. Canadian justice system, yeah. which sets him apart quite a bit from a lot of the other Métis in the area. It's it's not as though uh, you know none of them were educated, but a lot of them didn't have the opportunity to attend that level of education and, and uh, acquire that level of experience with um, specifically how how the British system worked. A lot of these people are still working as you know uh, making pemmican or or um, sailing barges up and down the rivers, things like that. It's mm-hmm. it's fairly uh, rural at this point. He leaves Montreal, kind of works in a number of different places, including St. Paul. Uh, keep in mind that the border between Canada and the U.S., especially for Métis people at this point, is still relatively fluid. I mean, mm-hmm. you just sort of go where you need to, and you'll probably have people there. A lot of people don't really think of Minnesota as having much of a, a French tradition, but yeah. there's, there's quite a there was quite a large uh, Métis population, at least at this point in time. He eventually returns to the Red River Colony in 1868, which is the year before uh, McDougal shows up with his survey team and he's, he's quite young at this point. I mean, he's, he's 24. He's done a lot in that yeah, period of time. No kidding. When these surveyors show up, Riel denounces the surveys in this firebrand speech on the steps of the cathedral, uh, in August of 1868, basically saying we can't allow these people to do this. This is, uh, illegal, mm-hmm. uh, and it violates you know, all sorts of things, including the 1763 treaties, mm-hmm. uh, that we tra- talked about so much in the first part saying that, you know, British settlers can't settle west of the, uh, St. Lawrence river and its basin, uh, without indigenous assent. And basically what he's saying is we need to have the opportunity as colonists to negotiate with the government of Canada what the terms of our inclusion in the Dominion of Canada are going to be. Yeah. He's not necessarily opposed to the idea of joining Canada. The way that Canada was working at this point, it's a confederation. So it's it's very much a there's a separation between the powers of the provinces and the federal government at this point. And he's not necessarily opposed to the idea of having a Métis province, a mm-hmm. province that is entirely made up of Métis people, where Métis people have a voice in the federal government and potentially affect change from the inside. What he's opposed to is the idea of uh, unincorporated lands like what the United States is using to sort of push indigenous people out um you know to the south he's seeing that as a as a massive problem and he's going we want proper representation we want uh funding for education things like that Mm -hmm. it takes him a couple of months to get really much of a resistance organized there's actually another uh, there's actually another metis uh leader who's also trying to garner uh, garner support in this period of time uh william deese who uh was advocating for a much more violent approach to resistance it was very much a uh, no, they can't come. Let's let's arm ourselves and, mm-hmm. and drive them out. Mm-hmm. But but ultimately, uh, Riel's philosophy wins out to some extent. Uh, you know, partially through you know uh, 
what you like to think of like as a very intellectual like <laughs> you know both ideas were considered and this is the one that came out partially because william deese was essentially driven out of town yeah um so it's it's a little of little of both there but by October of 1869, Riel had kind of emerged as a tacit Métis leader. He was well-spoken, well-educated, able to engage both French and English populations in the area, understood the way that the government worked. Mm-hmm. A really strong choice for, for leadership, despite his young age. In October, they, uh, he, he leads a group of men to where the survey team has begun working and essentially tells them, stop. Like he, they, they disrupt the work. Now, it's all fairly nonviolent. People will get arrested, but we're not yeah. seeing slaughter at this point. But basically, he goes to them and says, what authority do you have to be here? Yeah. And they don't have a good answer for him because they don't have any authority. Mm-hmm. They haven't been brought in by the Hudson Bay Company, who is currently governing. The government of Canada has no authority here. It's mm-hmm. nothing. There's nothing here. That was October 11th. Five days later, October 16th, he organizes what they call the, the Métis National Committee. And it is a pseudo-governmental board of Métis. It's uh, sort of a representative body representing Métis interests in Rupert's land or in the Red River Colony specifically. Mm -hmm. And they've done this to sort of give themselves uh, an air of legitimacy and as a way to organize their messaging and their negotiations. So this is a way to kind of say, look, this is our, this is what we want. This is who represents us. Mm -hmm. Um, This is who is allowed to negotiate on our behalf. Here's, here are our demands. The main goal here was to force the negotiation before Canada t- took over this land. They wanted all this stuff in place before Canada came in. Yeah. McDougall himself decides to come out and try and put some sort of end to all of this, but he still doesn't have any actual legal authority. And and in November, uh, November 2nd, he's turned away at the border by armed Métis. Now, again, no violence is, is done in this uh, this. Uh, confrontation, but right. they won't let him pass the borders. Yeah, and he actually has to um, flee down into the United States for for his safety, basically, because he has nowhere else to go. That same day, Riel and a number of men take uh, Fort Gary, which is the trading post at what would now be Winnipeg. Um, it's the main trading post in the area, and there's no bloodshed in this. They just march in and take control of it. It's very much symbolic control over the colony. It's sort of mm. the biggest outpost in the area. It's where a lot of the not that there's really a proper government here. There's what's known as the Assiniboine uh, Council that sort of looks uh, looks after everything, but that's just a, an arm of the HBC. So right. that's where a lot of this business is done by having control over Fort Gary. It's as much as symbolic as it is a practical control over the Red River Valley. Okay, this is seen as like a massive political win for Riel. Like it's it's he managed to take control without any violence. Mm-hmm. Riel doesn't really have like unanimous support in all of this those scottish settlers that we talked about are very upset by all of this they were really looking forward to this whole canadian control Mm -hmm. thing and there is some kind of backlash against what riel is doing so to his credit he basically decides to open up the metis national committee and and says okay well each parish in the red river colony uh, is allowed to send one anglo delegate and we'll hear what they have to say and we'll work together as like a parliamentary body basically mm-hmm. we want anglo and french uh, representatives here they don't really go anywhere though it's not it, it doesn't seem as though they're really negotiating in good faith yeah they really only want the metis to go away and yeah. to accept canadian rule governor mctavish the 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 hbc governor uh, on november 16th basically orders the metis to lay down arms and this is sort of like a last ditch effort to actually appeal to some sort of authority here mm-hmm. But at this point, Riel has control over Fort Gary. Uh, they've managed to turn away the Canadian authorities. Things seem to be going pretty well. The Métis National Council is, or Committee, sorry, is uh, well established. And he basically says, 
no. Yeah. And instead, they declare that they're going to form a provisional government to replace the Assiniboine Council and uh, take control of the Red River Colony. McDougall is extremely upset about this and on December 1st sends a letter saying that the HBC has uh, dissolved the Council of Assiniboia, that they no longer have any legal authority over the colony or over Rupert's land, Hmm. and that he is now the Lieutenant General of uh, this territory. Now, here's the thing. He did this because December 1st was the planned transfer date to Canada. Right. But when word of this uprising had gotten back to Ottawa, they decided to delay the transfer date until things had been taken care of. McDougall didn't know that. So what he's effectively done here is dissolved the only, from the British perspective, the only legitimate authority in the area without establishing a new Canadian authority. Oh, no. Thereby leaving the place entirely devoid of a government. Yeah. And in that space, the the Métis just step up and say, okay, well, we're the government now. Yeah. The pro-Anglo resistance, which had gotten somewhat violent, was quashed uh, in the first week or so of December. And the, the provisional government is officially established on December 8th. So a week after the Hudson Bay Company is declared uh, no longer um, in control. McDougall flees from the territory, probably a wise decision. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, the, the federal government sends out a, a couple of rounds of negotiators to meet with the new provisional government, and they're offering, you know, assurances of, asp- of respect for land claims, and they're offering guarantees of language rights and representation and all of that. Mm-hmm. The Métis, meanwhile, have written this series of 14 demands, and when you read them, they're all fairly reasonable. It's things like recognition of current land claims, yeah. uh, funding for education and roads. Uh, you know, it, it, they're basically asking to be treated as a full, proper province. They want representation in the federal government. They yeah, want- for sure. You know, it's it's all reasonable. It's all very reasonable. A, a lot of it is really trying to make sure that they're both French and English cultures are are well taken care of. But they're not looking for any special treatment necessarily as indigenous nations here, other than the legal recognition of their land claims. Yeah. Just under the federal government. After the declaration of this government, there the pro-Anglo side kind of flares up again. There's jailbreaks, there's armed organization again, but it's it's quashed down again. The, one of the major leaders, though, a uh, major Charles Bolton, is sentenced to death uh, mm. for this armed uprising. Okay, um, he's he's leading an armed uprising against the legitimate government of the area. But Riel's advisors basically say, you know what, as a as a sign of goodwill, let's pardon this guy. We'll put him in jail, but mm-hmm. you know, we won't we won't kill him. That seems. Uh, that seems like too much. Uh, this is partially his own advisors. This is partially requests from uh, the Canadian government. Mm-hmm. And Riel decides, like, okay, well, maybe that's for the best. There's one problem that comes out of this, though, which is that another of the uh, Anglo resistors, a guy named Thomas Scott, sees this as a sign of weakness from the Métis. And even though he's in jail, he starts uh, uh, attacking his guards. He starts, you know, harassing them verbally. He, he's he's mm-hmm. uh, he, he becomes such a, a problem for these guards that they actually request that he be further charged with... Um, uh, insubordination. Yeah. And when that trial is kind of going a little bit sideways, they add a, tri- uh, a charge of treason and he's found guilty. The court that su- sentences him recommends a, a death sentence and Riel agrees to this. Mm-hmm. His opinion is that if he doesn't send a message that this government is willing to enforce its laws, 
um, then they'll be seen as weak and they won't have any position of authority whatsoever in negotiation. So without doing this, they've basically lost uh, uh, any any leverage that they had up until now. Yeah. The government requests amnesty for Scott. Even some of Riel's uh, uh, advisors are saying this is a bad idea, but he decides, no, we better uphold this. Mm-hmm. And on the 4th of March, 1870, uh, Scott is, is executed by firing squad. This is about the time that it starts being referred to as the Red River Rebellion rather than uh, you know, a number of other names. Mm-hmm. People in Ontario specifically are absolutely outraged at the killing of Scott. It's seen as more of a French versus English issue at this point in time rather than a a settler versus indigenous issue. Mm -hmm. But there are howls for uh, Riel's head at this point, which I find interesting because, again, when this happens, there's no Canadian authority in this area. The Métis Provisional Government is the official government of the area. And one of the things that goes along with having sovereignty is a, is a monopoly on force and the ability to enforce your laws. Yep. Should Scott have been executed for what he did? Probably not. We are running a rebellion here, quote unquote, uh-huh. that so far has zero casualties on one side and one on the other. Yeah. That's a pretty tame rebellion. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> In fact, it's one of the most bloodless executions I've ever seen. Uh, it's It's amazing. April 11th, Métis delegates arrive in Ottawa to negotiate with the federal government, and they manage to successfully negotiate the colony into Canada as a vastly majority uh, Métis colony. It's about 90% of the population is Métis at this point in time. Right. Um, It's tiny compared to what uh, Manitoba is now. It basically incorporates just the Red River Valley area. It was called the Postage Stamp Province when it was created, Mm -hmm. because if you look at a map, it's it's just this little tiny square on there. but it is uh, it is uh, incorporated into Canada on on May twelfth of eighteen seventy, and a lot of the concessions that the Métis asked for were uh, agreed to. Um, things like uh, land claims were agreed to. Things like a bilingual parliament and uh, court system are agreed to. Lots of stuff that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. It actually goes fairly well for them. However, at the exact same time as the Manitoba Act is being confirmed, a military expedition uh, leaves Ontario heading for Manitoba. Uh, this is known as the Wolseley expedition after General Wolseley, who's running it. And this is done partially, if you ask the official uh, federal government at this point in time, it's mm-hmm. to help Manitoba secure its borders against the United States. And oh. it's a mission of peace. Okay. If you ask the average Ontario voter at this point in time, it's to put down that dog Riel. Yeah. <laughs> Officially, they're not there to take over the government in any way. But there are numerous rumors that members of this uh, military force are prepared to lynch Riel for what he's done to Scott. Mm. And so when this expedition arrives in Fort Garry in August, uh, Riel, along with a number of his followers, uh, flee, fearing for their lives. Mm -hmm. They tried to negotiate an amnesty into these negotiations with with the the government uh, under the Manitoba Act, but failed to do so. Now they got some promises of like, maybe eventually we'll get some amnesty in there, Mm -hmm. but they never secured anything hard, which is the same as nothing at all really in this situation. And tensions are so high over all of this that they don't really trust a a true amnesty at this point anyways. So Mm -hmm. this is essentially the end of the Red River Rebellion, at least the first uh, version of the Red River Rebellion. The military uh, secures, uh, again, bloodlessly uh, Fort Garry, and Riel leaves for the Dakota Territory. So uh, what would be today? Um, North Dakota. Okay. uh, Or Minnesota. I actually don't remember which side of the line he ended up on. But that's, uh, that's the end of the first rebellion. And 
it's really interesting in that when you look at it, uh, no real rebelling happened here. Mm-hmm. There was a fairly bloodless transfer of power a couple of times from one government to a second provisional one and then finally to the uh, Canadian government. Yeah. One man lost his life. There were a number of people put in jail. There were a number of people turned away at gunpoint. But that was about it. Mm-hmm. And yet the federal government is really never going to forgive Riel for what he did here. So I think this is a great place to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what the federal government learned from all of this in terms of uh, dealing with uh, indigenous people on the plains and what happens to Riel next. Hey everyone, just a heads up that HI101 is now available on Spotify. A number of you have been asking me about getting on the platform, but they were pretty unfriendly to independent podcasts until recently. That's changed now, so if you prefer to stream your podcasts, uh, search for HI101 there. All episodes are available now. We're back on HI101 with Yumiko Hutchinruther. Hello. And so far we've been talking about the Red River Rebellion proper, the one with Louis Riel leading a a resistance against the government of Canada Mm -hmm. over uh, land rights in the Red River Valley. And it does result in the creation of the province of Manitoba, which in a lot of ways is what the Métis were looking to accomplish out of all of this. Right. Um, This is created through the Manitoba Act of 1870. And the act does grant the Métis a lot of the concessions that they were looking for. Remember, we were talking about like there were uh, there were 14 points that they were looking for from the federal government, most of which were just looking for proper equal provincial representation on a provincial and federal level. What it doesn't do is give the Métis people any sort of legal recognition as indigenous under Canadian law. Okay. Um, but they didn't really necessarily see that as a, as a key piece of this agreement because Manitoba was, you know, 90% plus indigenous at this point. And because the way that the division of powers between the federal and provincial governments work in Canada, a lot of key items such as education are under provincial jurisdiction. They thought that with that majority, they would be able to sort of maintain a Métis culture or a Métis way of life in Mm -hmm. the province uh, free of, of federal um, meddling, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So this is really seen as a win for for the Métis, even though Louis Riel himself had to had to flee. the The one grant that is given to the Métis people, though, by the federal government is uh, some land grants. Both the land that is given to, uh, or both the land that is currently being used mm-hmm. by the Métis people, and there's an additional land grant given. It's uh, 5,700 square kilometers, which Given the size of the Rupert's Land grant, which was just given, uh, it's nearly 4 million square kilometers. It's really a small amount of land, but the federal government is hoping that this is enough to cover basically any Métis people who come forward to take advantage of this. Basically, they're offering uh, 96 acres to anyone who can come forward and prove that they're of Métis descent. So that's not considered like to be a substantial amount of land then compared to what they would have been used to or well, they, like given the context of they, they'd be able to keep the land that they're currently on but anyone mm-hmm. who doesn't currently own land had an, uh, an opportunity to claim uh, land for their own okay so if you didn't currently own a homestead you could go to the federal government say yes i'm metis right. provide documentation showing that and uh, then they'd give you like the 96 acres yes that's okay. right uh, the issue is they've significantly under estimated how many metis people lived in manitoba <laughs> and this land grant that they set aside uh, was way too small. 
the uh, you know the the modern province of Manitoba is is over one point three million square kilometers. It's it's massive. Mm-hmm. Um, Fifty seven hundred square kilometers is nothing. I, I was trying to find some comparison, you know, modern day geographically, and the best I could come up with is that's basically two states of Rhode Island, which are not. Like that's not big. Yeah, it's a pretty small state. It, it's very small. Um, and, and given that they, you know, the federal government just gained control of uh, nearly four kilo- four million square kilometers, mm-hmm. like you'd think that they would just sort of open up the land grants a little bit. You'd think so. But what they do instead is uh, decide to start giving money in kind. So they they started paying people out at a dollar an acre. Uh, so you get ninety six dollars instead of land, and that is a fair rate at this point in time for mm-hmm. land in this area. But there's a difference between, you know, just straight cash and title like to land. Like actually having like a physical plot. Yeah, yeah. Owning land is a really important thing. It's it's much more valuable than the than the cash it's necessarily worth. That's going to appreciate in value. Uh, that's going to mean being able to provide a livelihood for your family through farming. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of the first uh, uh, example we see really right off the bat of the federal government basically trying to find uh, any loopholes they can to not necessarily get around every agreement that they have with indigenous people, but certainly find the easiest way for them to, mm-hmm. um, you know, on paper, fulfill their obligations without necessarily going out of their out of their way, causing themselves any issues. Right now, they had learned from this whole Red River Rebellion that, you know, unilateral imposition of power on indigenous nations may not be. Uh, the best way to go about this whole yeah. expansion thing, it can result in unrest and violence. Um, it's clear that these people do remember their legal rights and that these legal rights still stand. Mm-hmm. There are agreements that have been made with uh, the British crown that, you know, they st- they're still in effect at this point in time. And these people haven't forgotten that they existed. Yeah. They know that they're there and they understand that the, you know, the government of Canada can't just go and do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So it becomes imperative that the Canadian government uh, negotiate. Uh, which is something that was required in the Rupert's Land uh, transfer anyway, but it's, yeah. it's it's clear that they can't just ignore that responsibility to negotiate with Indigenous peoples in the Plains if they're uh, firm set on expanding into this area. The government begins uh, negotiating treaties in 1871, and this is a series of treaties known as the Numbered Treaties b- because they're known by uh, just numbers. It's Treaty 1, Treaty 2, Treaty 3, etc. And these treaties are negotiated. It's really important to understand they're, they're negotiated by the Lieutenant General of uh, the uh, the province of Manitoba. Mm-hmm. And the way that the way the power works in Canada in terms of, uh, you know, head of state is that Canada is technically a monarchy even to this day. Uh, the the reigning king or queen of Britain is the head of state. And, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, the, or talk about the prime minister as though they're the, the head of state. And like, yeah, functionally, practically, kind yes. <laughs> but that's not where ultimate power lies in, in Canada. There There's uh, royal assent required to you know sign laws, etc. Mm-hmm. And the way this is accomplished is through a governor general at a federal level uh, who is uh, an appointed position that works uh, or that acts as the queen's representative in government. And then on a provincial level, it's the lieutenant general, um, lieutenant, not lieutenant, because it's uh, a French route uh, rather than English one for the for the word. The treaties are negotiated with these indigenous nations through the uh, the the lieutenant general or sorry, lieutenant governor, because it's a it's a it's a, an agreement between two sovereign nations mm-hmm. via the the head of state of both and. This is really important to the indigenous nations that are uh, negotiating them. They don't want to deal with some sort of 
down the list government official. They want somebody who actually has real power and authority to uh, to enforce all of this because they remember yeah. they remember how this works with all of the other agreements that they've made with representatives of the uh, of the crown mm-hmm. and how strong they've been for them. So they they re- reject basically anyone other than a, a direct uh, representative. These treaties are going to be different, though, than uh, previous treaties that have been signed with indigenous bands. Previously, they've made sure that any agreements that are signed are written in both English and in uh, whichever language they're uh, uh, they're dealing with right. on the uh, on the indigenous nations side, and they make sure that the translations are very good. Both copies are signed. Everything is very very clear on both sides. Mm-hmm. They're also making sure that any legal traditions that exist on the part of the indigenous nations are uh, incorporated into these agreements partially due to respect, partially to ensure that the treaties are, are enforced properly. Yeah. Um, Everyone's on the same page. Which is important in a negotiation, right? Of course. <laughs> These numbered treaties are going to be conducted entirely in English. There will be translators provided for each of the indigenous nations that are being negotiated with, usually Métis. Right. But the ultimate agreement is going to be in English, signed in English. And there's a lot of confusion over what exactly is being agreed to. And we know that because we have diaries of both British negotiators or Canadian negotiators, I should say, and indigenous negotiators on how the, you know, how the negotiations are proceeding, what they're agreeing to, Mm. how they're feeling about it, all of this stuff. And what you get when you compare them even day to day, is kind of like they, they clearly have a very different sense of what's going on. Yeah. And part of this is a lack of clarity on the side of the Canadian uh, government where they're using, they're, they're occasionally using language, for example, that is extremely unclear in an effort to, uh, they believe appeal to uh, the people they're negotiating with. There's, there's one example where they, they use the phrase for as long as the sun walks. Oh no. <laughs> which, you know, it's, it's not like it doesn't come from anywhere in indigenous uh, tradition, but it's, it's, it feels like they're, um, they're appealing to them on sort of a condescending yeah. uh, level rather than actually laying out clear terms. Yeah, like it's lacking traditional context for that kind of terminology to be used. Right. And there's also not an intention necessarily for the traditional meaning of that phrase to be uh, yeah. upheld in the way it's... Like, what does that mean on the Canadian-British side of things, right? right. Like, and, and that's where that clarity that we talked about is is kind of missing. Mm-hmm. There's also examples of things being written into the English side of treaties that aren't actually discussed with or agreed to by the indigenous nations that are doing the negotiations. Okay. So they don't even realize that they've actually agreed to this. Uh-oh. Yeah, it's really bad. And yeah. there's there's also examples of of um negotiators pandering to indigenous cultures in other ways as well. For example, during negotiations for Treaty 6, there's a uh, peace pipe ceremony. Mm-hmm. And this is a really this is as binding as anything in 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 any other legal uh, uh, tradition, mm-hmm. where anything that's said during a, a negotiation following one of these ceremonies, uh, you you can't lie. Like this is a this is a truth binding yeah. act. And the fact that the British, or I, I keep saying British, it is Canadian at this point. The fact that the Canadian negotiators um, would go and and alter things afterwards mm-hmm. was absolutely unthinkable to the people that they were working with yeah um it's 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 a little bit it's a little bit gross yeah like that's that's awful yeah uh what's more a lot of the 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 wording is very paternalistic in nature and 
this is not necessarily objected to by uh, the indigenous nations being uh, negotiated with, but their understanding of what exactly this is going to mean for the relationship moving forward mm-hmm. is not understood in the same way. Mm-hmm. So it's very much talking about uh, you know the queen mother, and it's talking about the indigenous people as being her children. And on the indigenous side, they're th- they're they're taking all of this language to mean a level of benevolent protection, yeah, like a parent for their child. Whereas on the British side, what they're doing is. They're, they're taking agreement to these terms as being agreement to become wards of the state. That's so manipulative. So literally childlike. So uh, yeah. lacking lacking the type of rights that minors lack yeah. under under uh, standard Canadian law. And so they're using all of these treaties as justification to put restrictions on uh, all sorts of things. You know, for example, not allowing uh, alcohol onto onto reservation uh, onto reserves or uh, removing the right to vote, like we talked about mm-hmm. earlier. There, there's all of this stuff that goes into it that these nations didn't realize that's what they were agreeing to when they wrote these. Yeah, that's horrible. A lot of work has been done on these agreements uh, since on a, on a legal level. And for the most part, it's it's really hard to legally enforce uh, a number of these treaties at this point mm-hmm. uh, or, or certain parts of these treaties because of the coercive nature of, of the wording. Yeah. There's, there's other really important uh, mismatches here. For example, what is... What is being negotiated here yeah. in terms of land use? Because at, at the risk of, of speaking in generalities, which is, is a, a really common pitfall when talking about Indigenous history, a lot of the bands that are being negotiated with under the treaty system don't have the same sort of concept of land ownership as uh, the Europeans did. Mm-hmm. It's not as though they thought that you know no one can own anything in some of the really ad absurdium concepts that uh, or misconceptions that exist today. But... You know, it, it, it's much more of a, a sort of common ownership of the land. It's more of a stewardship relationship with physical land rather than fencing it off and calling it mine. Yeah. What is generally believed to be to be uh, agreed to here is a sharing of the land. Mm-hmm. So both Indigenous peoples and Canadian uh, settler peoples will be able to use the land together. Right. What the Canadian government is taking all of this to mean is that the indigenous peoples are handing over sovereignty of these lands to the government of Canada. Right. Which, again, these mismatches are causing massive problems here. The uh, the treaties result in... Let, let's talk about some of the specifics. Each, each treaty is a little bit different, but mm-hmm. generally the way that it works is that the indigenous nations agree to allow Canadians to settle the land and to allow Canadian law to apply to those settlers in exchange for a few things. Uh, the government of Canada is going to pr- provide land reserves for these indigenous peoples, which means places that these settlers are not allowed to settle. Right. The government will provide monetary compensation. Keep in mind, these are these are nations that are in uh, massive trouble due to the collapse of the buffalo hunt, yeah. uh, diseases, etc. that we talked about last time. There are promises of peace and protection, so no more military action against them. Uh, there will be military protection. There will be uh, protection from uh, settlers. Mm-hmm. And usually the government would also provide things like farming tools, uh, a guarantee of providing education on the reserves for uh, Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some of them, there's what's known as a medicine chest clause. And the medicine chest clause is actually a really useful uh, example of how the government is going to get around a lot of these obligations, Mm -hmm. because the understanding a medicine chest is literally just a box full of medicines. Okay. And it's the sort of thing that you'd have in any trading post in Rupert's land. Uh, It would be just really like a first aid kit kind of a little more advanced than that. But essentially, yeah, you're not Mm -hmm. going to you're not going to find all the things you would have in a a hospital, for example. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be some whiskey and uh, an opium in there to, to help out if there's a you know, an injury or something like that. Right. 
the phrasing of the medicine kit, uh, the medicine chest clauses is usually done in such a way that it sounds like the government has an obligation to provide health care for these people. Yeah. The government takes this clause to mean literally we need to leave a box full of medicine. Okay. And that's the sort of thing that we're looking at here. Yeah. It's not the same thing. No. And a lot of the, the challenges to these uh, treaties moving forward are going to be on those grounds. What does a medicine chest clause mean? What yeah, is like the they're not really here? clearly defined. No. So the first seven treaties of the number of treaties are negotiated between 1871 and 1877. Then they're they're all about securing land rights to the West. Treaties eight through eleven, that's the the rest of them, are negotiated later. They'll be 1899 to 1922. Mm-hmm. Those are all about securing natural resources. This is, uh oh, we found out there's gold in the Yukon. Better right. find out how we can get it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, there's natural gas up here. Let's deal with it. All of that stuff. So that's the treaties. And in general, the treaties, as flawed as they are, are not the main source of uh, the issues between Indigenous peoples and the government of Canada. Yeah. The real issue comes in 1876 when a piece of legislation that actually still exists to this day with amendments is created. It's known as the Indian Act. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is still called the Indian Act today. Mm -hmm. And the Indian Act is not an agreement between the government of Canada and Indigenous peoples. The Indian Act is a piece of legislation that defines how the Canadian government interacts with Indigenous people and how it executes its responsibilities as laid out by the treaty system. So this is very one-sided. This is very unilateral. They have all of a sudden forgotten all of those lessons from less than a decade before. Mm -hmm. Um, It it does two main things. It, It defines how the the government is going to interact with them, like what its obligations are. And it defines, and this is the really important part, who is and is not an Indian. Ah, okay. And there are, you you would think that would be a simple thing. Um, You'd think. (laughs) You'd think so. Um, But keep in mind, the Métis didn't actually negotiate status as indigenous with the federal government. Yeah. So the Métis are not actually considered status Indians in Canada. Like to this day? To this day. Huh. What's more, there will never be any uh, negotiation with Inuit because there was never really enough of them in enough important places for the government to feel like there was a, a need or, or a danger of them pushing back if they just sort of took that land. Mm-hmm. So Inuit are also not status Indians. Oh, good. And anyone uh, or anyone who was previously a status Indian can lose their... Uh, their status and become a non-status Indian, at which point they're no longer entitled to any of the benefits that are promised to indigenous people under these treaties. I was going to say, so then they'd have to like return the land and or money Yes, and everything. Okay. They're not allowed to live on reserve. They're not allowed uh, any of the grants given by the government. They're no longer considered Indians. Under Where the are they supposed to go? Like, uh, As far as the government of Canada is concerned, they are now Canadians with no special status. Okay. The way that the Indian Act is set up, to this day, honestly, is is in terms of the definition of who is and is not status Indian, is designed uh, explicitly to eliminate status Indians, mm-hmm. or, or rather the status part of that. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, at least some Canadians listening will go like, oh, hang on, that doesn't sound, you know, that's that sounds a little strong. Let's ask, I don't know, our first Prime Minister, John A. Macdonald, what the purpose <laughs> of the Indian Act is. Mm-hmm. And I quote, the great aim of our legislation has been to do away with the tribal system and assimilate the Indian people in all respects with the other inhabitants of the Dominion as speedily as they are fit to change. So those intentions are pretty clear. <laughs> and people wonder why we don't want statues up. Yeah. Um, the way that the the way that um, it worked uh, when it when it first started was basically you need to be registered with a an Indian tribe um, and, and have documentation of that. Mm-hmm. If your father is a status Indian, then you retain status. 
if you're a woman and you have a child whose father is not a status Indian, uh, or you can't prove as a status Indian, mm-hmm. then your child will no longer have status. I see. What's more, your status flows only from your father's side. So if your parents are from yeah. two different tribes, you only get status in the tribe that your father belongs to. That was going to be my next question, too. Like if it was strictly paternal. Yes. But yeah. Which is a real problem for a lot of these societies because yeah. a lot of them uh, work on a maternalistic uh, uh, lineage in terms of which tribes you belong to. Yeah. And again, not all of them. We want to be careful about generalizations. But there's a, a real imposition of European values uh, as a whole through mm-hmm. the through the Indian Act because it, it's not just this you know paternalistic society that's imposed through all of this, which, by the way, is incredibly unfair it's been uh it's been uh redone so that uh both genders equally can lose status in the same ways Yay. <laughs> um you know now it depends on uh you know is are, are both your parents uh status indians and if not okay so how, how does it work now if both your parents are status indians a status indian has a six one uh six bracket one designation okay if both of your parents are six one then you're also six one okay if one of your parents is six one and another is not status then you become six two if you're six okay. two and you marry a non-Indian, your children will lose status. I see. If you're six two and you marry a six one, your children will be six one. Uh. Like it's 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 designed specifically to restrict who you can have children with, yeah. um, based on whether or not you're okay with your children losing status, which is that's kind terrible. Of all that's really left from some of these these traditions is these uh, payments that your people are owed, quote, as long as the sun walks. Yeah. Um, which is being taken away from you. Yeah. There's other uh, restrictions that are being put on over the years, imposing elected style government governance on all bands, whether or not they were uh, democratic to begin with, which a lot of them aren't. So now you have two separate governments running in parallel, hereditary chiefs and uh, the selected band. But if you don't have the elected band, you don't get any of the uh, any of the uh, uh, entitlements that you uh, that you, you're owed. Mm-hmm. Forced European style housing. There's no personal private ownership on reserves. All of these houses belong to the government. So you have to apply to live in a house. That's so awful. Yes. Imposing English names. A lot of these people are being given last names when they've never had them before for purposes of being registered with the government. You know, the the government did stuff like this to immigrants around this time too, but you know, they're they're not they're not forcing new names on any like my 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 family was arriving in in canada around this time my last name was spelled completely differently Mm -hmm. the census guy came around and changed it to whatever he wanted but we could move wherever we wanted and we kept our name essentially the same yeah it's it's pretty different you start with a z um (laughs) yeah it's weird but you know you don't have people coming around and just giving people all new names first and last which is what was happening here Mm -hmm. they restricted civil participation so status indians couldn't vote until the 1960s uh you could but you had to renounce your status and then you were no longer given any of these entitlements um uh, limited mobility you couldn't leave the reserve without a pass from the indian agent which is unconstitutional but nobody really knew how to fight it restrictions on alcohol because there's this uh, idea that somehow native people are unable to uh, handle alcohol and really uh, alcohol uh, alcohol problems in those communities goes a lot more back to you know economic inequality than anything which is being mm-hmm. caused by these systems yeah. there's limits on who you can sell your produce to yeah um which limited uh, economic advancement there's limits on which professions you can take up you couldn't become a doctor or a lawyer without losing your status yeah there's like a lot of implied ultimatums like based on your status if you want to keep your status none of which is actually in the treaties that were signed yeah and so indigenous people are looking at this and going okay well we have a treaty with the queen and you're yeah. breaking it yeah you're not holding up your your treaty yeah there's a there's a really common uh, thread when you look at what indigenous people today are saying about the relationship between them and Canada, which is that we're all treaty people. Mm-hmm. We all have a treaty with each other. And 
it's the uh, responsibility of Canadian people to both learn their treaty obligations and to uphold them wherever they can yeah. and to try and force the government to uh, become accountable to these treaties because they haven't been since the start. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, education clauses that are put in here, the ultimate result of this is the residential school uh, system, which we don't have to spend a lot of time on. It's an incredibly depressing subject, but essentially instead of putting um, schools on the reserves, they decided that if the schools were on the reserves, uh, it was too easy for these people to keep their language and culture. And so the best way to, well, in the words of the government at the time, kill the Indian and the child was to take these children, remove them hundreds, sometimes thousands of kilometers away from their homes, mm-hmm. put them in these boarding schools that were usually run by religious orders where they were, uh, you know, their hair was cut. They were unallowed. They were they were unable to speak their traditional languages. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I, I look at my family, my grandfather, you know, we had we had been here 70, 80 years mm-hmm. growing up. Uh, he, he didn't speak English until he entered primary school. They could yeah. speak, you know, they could speak uh, Polish all they wanted. Yeah. Never a problem. But uh, if you're indigenous, no, you're shipped off and you're, you're uh, beaten every time you're, you're, uh, you speak uh, uh, your traditional language, yeah. any uh, traditional religious beliefs, not allowed to practice those. There are laws put in place against the practice of indigenous religions. It's the, what's known as the potlatch ban. Mm-hmm. Um it's sickening. It's it's absolutely horrible, and and it it's it's been described very recently by our own government as cultural genocide. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's an accurate uh, assessment of what happens here. And and finally, there's the the creation of the Northwest Mounted Police, which becomes the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. The, you know the Mounties, the, mm-hmm. the fun guys on the you know with the red the the, the red outfits uh, riding around the on horses. the horses. Those are put in place essentially to keep these native people in line. The official party line here is that there are some whiskey smugglers coming up from the United States that they're, you know, they're trying to keep uh, a, a lid on. But it's partially that. It's partially to enforce the uh, the Indian Act. Yeah. It's a big part of their their creation. So let's get back to our friend, Louis <laughs> after all of this, because you, you do need to know all of this before we, we get back to him, uh, because it's it's really important to understand what happened in between the, you know, the, the Red River Rebellion and uh, this next one, which is properly called the Northwest Rebellion. The Métis started moving out of uh, Manitoba as uh, English settlers moved in because there was no land for them. Remember, it wasn't put in place. Mm-hmm. So they moved further west into the Northwest Territories and what into what is now Saskatchewan. And that was a tricky spot because they didn't technically have title to the land, but neither did any of the other settlers that are settling there. And, you know, it's sort of a up in the air sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, the Métis were trying to work with indigenous people in the area, but generally, European Canadians weren't trying to do so. In 1883, Métis residents in a place called uh, St. Louis, Northwest Territories, and like I said, in, in future Saskatchewan, discover, once again, surveyors in their town, right. carving the whole thing up, ignoring what's already there. They found out that the uh, their entire property had been sold, their entire town had been sold by the Canadian government to a an expansion firm. There, there were these companies that all they did was sell sort of new homestead packages to uh, immigrants. Mm-hmm. And they found out that their stuff had all been sold. Oh, no. And so they reached out to Louis Riel to return. Uh, Riel had been in exile since the Red River Rebellion. Yeah. He traveled around the United States a little bit, ended up in upstate New York. Uh, there was sort of a, a religious colony. It was a, not quite an order. It's not like a, he, he didn't become a monk or anything like that, but yeah. it was one of these sort of uh, communal religious uh, living centers that you find once in a while. And a really interesting thing comes at this point in time where Riel has been stewing over what happened in, in the Red River uh, colony for a long time. And he's become so steeped in, you know, his, his, in, in this religious practice because he's living it every single day. Yeah. He begins developing the sense that he had been divinely appointed as a leader for the Métis. 
Okay. Um, he starts writing these wild religious tracts. He starts, uh, some of it like verging on heretical, uh, he's spending, and, and it's one of those things where like some people have speculated now that he may have suffered from narcissism. Mm-hmm. Now there's the usual caveats there on trying to diagnose historical figures. Yeah, uh, for sure. Mental illness is a product of a great many things. Some of which is the society that you live in and it's not always fair to put that on somebody but yeah it's a it's not an unuseful framework for the type of behavior he began exhibiting Mm -hmm. um he was very convinced that he was a religious leader at some point okay um to the point where he started like disrupting uh, services and things like that the priests that he uh knew and worked with were trying to like kind of rein him in a little bit like come on louis it's not to the point where he started yeah he started uh, disrupting services and they had no choice basically but to commit him to an asylum under an assumed name yeah so he spent some time in a in an insane asylum in in upstate new york yeah they just kind of didn't know what else to do with him yeah Uh, he's released in 1876 and returns to saint paul where he had spent some time before remember in in modern day minnesota uh and he seems to have sort of evened out at that point being away from the religious colony mellowed might, out a might bit <laughs> helped out he he actually settled down he started a, a family he moved west before he started this family in 1882 and he ended up having three children and became involved in politics briefly became a, a republican politician before they realized that hey he's not actually a, a, a u.s citizen <laughs> so he naturalized in 1883 became a u.s citizen okay um and by 1884 when all of this stuff is going down with the metis up in saskatchewan uh he's just teaching school in Montana. Hmm. Uh, he's got a pretty quiet life. He's, you know, quietly active in his local church, but seems to be getting along with everybody, all of that. Yeah. But then he gets this call from a group of Métis who say, Louis, we need your help. We need you to lead us against the Canadian government. It's happening. He gets the call, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, he 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 heads off. <laughs> he heads off back to Canada. Uh, he's willing to, um, to, to kind of risk it. By the way, Manitoba has never lost its love for Riel throughout this entire ordeal. They actually uh, elected him to um, the federal government. He, they elected him as a, as a member of parliament, mm-hmm. uh, I think four times while <laughs> he was in, in exile. He obviously never yeah. sat for it because, you know, other Métis leaders had been caught and executed for the, the murder of, or uh, the, the, the execution of Scott. Mm-hmm. And he was quite worried about the same thing. He had sort of gotten a guarantee that he'd be safe if he stayed in exile for five years. Yeah. But he wasn't sure how strong that was. Yeah. Wasn't exactly like signed and sealed, <laughs> but this was like, this was it. He got the call. Soriel heads up to St. Louis in uh, Saskatchewan and they explain what's going on. This starts out as, you know, a protest of this whole land survey and the land purchase, right? Right. And Riel goes, okay, that's great. Well, good news. I'm divinely appointed to be here for you. <laughs> and they kind of go, oh, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, we're going to lead a Métis uprising against the country of Canada and we're going to take our land back and God sent me to be here. Right on. And... What what happens? Praise be. Yeah. What what happens here is is it shifts very quickly from like this this very specific localized protest to an attempt at sort of a a much wider pushback against what's happened with the the treaty system and the the sort of uh, the fact that the government has ignored the treaties that they've put in place. Yeah. So there's there's a there's an attempt to coordinate with the local uh, Nehia leaders that fails because they're kind of like, well, we have different aims. Like we didn't want you guys settling here in the first place. Like we don't want to help yeah, you exactly. protest it. We didn't want anybody here. So <laughs> you know, please, by, by all means. They're also upset because, you know, the aim is just to get this very like 
specific thing back. It's not about the treaties that they're coming to realize are, are really harmful to them. This is all in uh, Treaty 6 land. Mm-hmm. Riel basically goes, okay, well, that's fine. But he starts increasing these attempts to make his leadership a religious issue. And uh, you know, he, at first he's got support of the church, but then they realize that he's got some pretty out there beliefs and yeah. he starts shedding supporters, especially uh, English Métis supporters, mm-hmm. who are kind of like, well, this is, you know, we're, we're not Catholic and this is kind of, yeah. this is a bit much for us. And, and even some some uh, French Métis, French-speaking Métis supporters who are going, I just wanted my land. Like I didn't, I wasn't looking to join a cult here. Yeah. But what results is like this much smaller, but much more um, fervent band of supporters who are like, yes, I am here for this. They get themselves armed. They provide, or they declare a provisional government of Saskatchewan. So Riel's hitting all his like greatest hits here, right? Yeah. <laughs> starts, starts trying to open negotiations, cuts telegraph lines, mm. uh, running to some of the local forts. Because he hears that the Northwest Mounted Police are starting to concentrate forces that might be coming after him. Mm. All of this is like pretty textbook from what he did in the Red River Rebellion. Yeah. The difference between then and now is the Canada Pacific Railroad. Last time it took months for any government military forces to get from Ontario Uh, to Manitoba. It takes uh, a couple of weeks for it to happen this time. Mm Mm-hmm. The numbers that we're talking about in this uprising are also much bigger. The Red River Rebellion had been, you know, we're talking about uh, dozens to hundreds in most cases. It was pretty small. Mm-hmm. Um, as many as 5,000 Canadian troops end, end up in this area to put down this rebellion. However, before they get there, the Métis take on uh, the Northwest Mounted Police uh, outside of Duck Lake. It's, it's known as the Battle of Duck Lake in March mm-hmm. of 1885. And about 90 or so... Northwest Mounted Police are defeated by 200 to 250 Métis. And it's seen as this massive, like, okay, well, this could be a thing. Yeah. And this victory leads to this grassroots uprising of uh, Indigenous nations who are like, well, okay, we might not have exactly the same aims, but maybe there's something here that we can work together on. Mm -hmm. So you get uh, Nehia leaders, uh, one of the main ones being Big Bear, jumping on board with this cause. So the numbers go up quite a bit. There's a battle uh, with one of the initial forces coming from from Ontario of about 900 Northwest Mounted Police uh, uh, reservists against only 200 or so Métis and Indigenous uh, troops that the Métis end up winning. And there's this massive momentum. It gets yeah. very scary for the uh, for the uh, the federal government at, yeah. at a certain point. <laughs> I bet. And these indigenous uh, uh, nations that are fighting alongside again, it stopped being about this one little colony. It becomes about we had an agreement. Yep. You're not keeping it. You know why can't we leave our reserves? Why aren't why aren't we allowed to purchase ammunition? We can't hunt without guns. Mm-hmm. But the government had restricted the sale of ammunition to indigenous people, partially because of a fear of exactly this type of like uprising. what's happening. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's 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 all these little things that are coming to a head. And and you know why why are we able to practice our traditional way of life? This is uh, you know right in the in around the time where the last of the buffalo hunts are happening. Mm-hmm. There's uh, significant like societal unrest. There's all of these things coming to a head, and this flashpoint of Riel. Uh, leading the small band of Métis against the Northwest Mounted Police uh, blows up into this much bigger thing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it's it's fairly short-lived. There's a number of Indigenous victories, but once those 5,000 troops get into the area, it's more or less over fairly quickly, in about two two to three months. Riel is captured by uh, Northwest Mounted Police forces on May 15th. Um, mm-hmm. This is where, like, do, do you know the name Sam Steele? I do, but... He's like an early, like, Mountie, basically. Okay. And he's really held up as, like, this hero of, like, the Canadian frontier. He's, he is, he is 
reveling in this ability, this this uh, opportunity to go uh, to battle against these uh, Nehian nations. Right. Um, Big Bear's forces are are defeated uh, June 3rd, 1885, which results in the capture of Big Bear. He's he's held. Uh, he isn't actually executed, but he's he's held for so long that they end up not sentencing him and releasing him because he's so old that they don't think he's going to be able to do anything anymore. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's really the last sort of push against the Canadian government by indigenous peoples, uh, in response to these treaties. Yeah. Um, afterwards there isn't a lot of, uh, political or military willpower and both the government through legislation and the Northwest mountain police through, uh, application of force are going to basically make sure that this is not able to happen again. There's a bunch of, uh, laws that go in place into the, in the 1880s and 1890s restricting organization anything over i believe three uh indigenous people is is required to have some sort of uh licensing wow um it's 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 authoritarian tactics this is very like yeah yeah it's it's something else riel is brought to trial and charged with treason Mm -hmm. there's a question of whether to hold the trial in winnipeg which has now been incorporated as a city so in in manitoba Mm -hmm. um which is likely going to be friendly to him or to hold the trial in Regina, uh, mm-hmm. which is in Saskatchewan, uh, which won't be friendly to him. Mm-hmm. And the reason there's a question here is that technically the courts in Winnipeg have jurisdiction over all of the Northwest Territories. Mm-hmm. So that should be where the trial happens. Yeah. But the government basically makes an exception to allow the courts in Regina where Saskatchewan has not yet been incorporated. They basically give them the, the authority to try this case. Okay. Basically, under, under the argument of, well, the crimes happened in Saskatchewan or in Northwest Territories, I should say, uh, they should be tried in the Northwest Territories. Mm-hmm. Which is some kind of... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. His lawyer attempts an insanity plea, mm-hmm. which Riel isn't terribly happy with, but... Yeah. Um, you know, basically this guy went, well, this guy's so crazy, like, leaving him alive is punishment enough, was <laughs> basically his defense. Right. Riel, for his part, gives a number of speeches, just impassionately explaining why he did what he did. Some of it very sound, uh, honestly. It was, it was relatively put together, considering uh, the reports of... Uh, megalomania yeah. in his later life but the uh the jury of six scottish and english canadians uh ended up finding him guilty mm-hmm. they did recommend mercy they felt that uh they you know he should he should get off with a, a prison term but the uh the judge ended up sentencing him to death despite that recommendation mm-hmm. one of the jurors on the trial was later asked about this this sentencing and his his, his uh impression was quote we tried real for treason and he was hanged for the murder of scott the idea being that the government of Canada has had it out for, yeah, for Riel since the Red River Rebellion. Yeah. It was unacceptable to them that he uh, managed to stand up to them and win. Mm-hmm. And they've been fo- uh, fixated on this one thing for so long. Yeah. This was incredibly unpopular in French Canada. It's interesting because you and I have been talking about this very much through an indigenous lens. And there's there's a whole other side to this story that is... I think a little bit better known and a little bit less important to discuss here, which is that Quebec saw Riel as one of their own because he was French speaking. Yeah. They saw a lot of this conflict as being an attempt by English speaking Canada to roll over French speaking uh, Roman Catholics yeah, for sure. in the rest of Canada, because that's going to be uh, an ongoing theme of Canadian history for yeah. forever. Um, yeah, for them, it's like English versus French. Right. And, and what Riel had done in the creation of Manitoba was create another bastion for the French language outside yeah. of Quebec, which was the only place it was legislated to exist within, you know, at the time of Confederation. Mm-hmm. And so 
it was seen as a, as a massive injustice. It was seen as a, an overreach of the federal government. It was seen as um, an attempt at uh, Anglo superiority in Canada. Yeah. It was incredibly unpopular. There were multiple requests for appeals, but at this level, because it had been considered like a federal trial, mm-hmm. um, the only place that it could be appealed to was the Privy Council. So the, you know, in Britain, mm-hmm. um, and in order to do that, it had to be approved by the federal government. Johnny McDonald blocked this. Mm-hmm. Uh, his his actual quote about it was, "He shall die, though every dog in Quebec bark in <laughs> his favor." Oh my god! Yeah. Okay. He had it out for real. Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, Louis Riel was hanged on the 16th of November, 1885. So we kind of started this whole thing off uh, with a question, which was, should the government of Canada have executed Louis Riel? Did they have the right to? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons it's an enduring uh, uh, question is there isn't a great answer for that. Yeah. Now, the Red River Rebellion, I think there's a kind of a clear cut issue there yeah. in that the government of Canada didn't have jurisdiction in that place when the crime that they accused him of happened. Mm-hmm. Would that have bothered the government of Canada at the time? Probably not. But, you know, in, in hindsight, that makes a lot of sense. But what about the second one? He led an armed uprising against government forces in what had been negotiated to be Canadian territory. Yeah. However, those negotiations were done in bad faith and were actively being uh, violated at the time of the uprising. Yeah, exactly. More people were killed in this, in this, uh, uh, the, the Northwest Rebellion, mm-hmm. um, a few dozen on each side. And, you know, Riel very openly uh, advocated for violence and agitation in this whole thing. Yeah. Is that treason? Is that worth the death penalty? Was there other political motivation behind it? Yeah. It's a difficult question. Yeah. I mean... And a lot of it depends on, I think, on your stance on the validity of the numbered treaties, which is a really complicated issue to this day. Yeah. Yeah. There's no like real clear cut answer. No, there isn't. Riel is, is, is one of the most complicated figures in Canada, Canadian history um, and one of the most discussed, at least at higher levels, as we talked about. Mm-hmm. And I think in the same way that some of the issues in... Quebec history sort of cut to the heart of Canadian identity and Canadian history. This is one of those flashpoints where I, I think the controversy and the popularity comes down to where Canadians see or what Canadians think of Canada and its relationship yeah. to Indigenous peoples. Yeah. It, it's it's not an easy one to answer. I, I'm sure if I don't give my specific opinion, people will be asking for me. No, I, I don't think it was right. I think that when you measure out all the sides on this whole thing, uh, the way that Canada has has treated its indigenous peoples is is uh, absolutely outrageous, and yeah. um, the idea that they would uh, be upset about it enough to to take arms is not a surprising thing. No one should be surprised by that. No, not at all. And yeah, I I, I don't know what else to necessarily say about that beyond. Well, there there were a couple of other things I wanted to add. Uh, a little bit outside of the topic, though. Um, I, I think. You know, and, and this is more for, for Canadian listeners specifically, but really for any nation that has uh, an indigenous population. And before you say no, that you don't, there's a lot more than you would necessarily think. I yeah. mean, uh, Finland has a has an indigenous population. Uh, Japan has an indigenous population. Yeah. Australia, New Zealand. Um, there's, there's a lot of places that, you know, for better or for worse, have uh, very complex relationships with the people who uh, are still alive today that were here first. Yep. And I, I think... 
I, in general, I'm not one of those like never trust anything the government says types. But I think when it comes to, you know, the validity of those government sovereignty, they sometimes bend the rules pretty hard past the breaking point. Yeah. And uh, I, I think as a, as a Canadian, it's it's been an eye opener to learn about some of this stuff and realize just how far we've been willing to go to keep control of those areas. So, yeah. I, I would encourage anyone in, in, a com- in a country that has an indigenous population to try and learn a little bit about it on your own, because um, you probably won't get the full story in school. It's not really in uh, the interests of the yeah. you know the Ministry of Education to give you the full story. I know I didn't get it. No, I, I agree. I like I knew this episode, this topic was going to be really eye opening for me, but it's it's upsetting hmm. to know that there's all this history that we're not being taught in school and that a lot of this is like brand new information to me. And a lot of this is going to come across as like extremely political to a lot of Canadians, which is kind of scary. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I do want to stress that like nothing I've said here is, well, I mean, I've, I've injected lots of opinions, but the, the, the facts are, are very clear and very easily accessible. This all, yeah. this all happened. This isn't a, you know, this isn't a, a you know, I've, I've done my best not to, to slant this, uh, this topic any more than, I, I would any other one, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that I think better understanding might really have an, ex- uh, uh, an effect on our relationship with these people. And yeah. uh, I, I think it's true. We are all, you know, we, we do have an, a responsibility to figure out what it is that we've agreed to, yeah, um, for sure. to live in this place yeah, and, uh, to try and, and follow through on those. So, um, the only way to do that is to, is to educate yourself. You're not going to get it anywhere else. No. Um, if you don't know where to start, I mean, there's there's always places. There's uh, a massive community of uh, Indigenous people uh, online. Twitter is amazing for this that are doing so much uh, heavy lifting in terms of education, yeah. uh, often for free, just because uh, just because they know that that's the only way that the message gets out. Yeah. Um, you know, find them, read their stuff. You don't have to agree with everything, but listen. You know, that's that's the place that this stuff starts. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, shout out, I guess, to everybody who said that I never say anything bad about anyone but the U.S. Um, <laughs> this uh, this episode was not exactly the most Canada friendly, even from a no, Canadian. No, it's extremely shameful. Um, you know, I, I think <laughs> and, and, you know, let me be clear. I, I, I love living here. Canada is amazing, but that doesn't mean we don't have work to do. So, no, absolutely. Um, you know, sometimes criticism of, of things that you uh, love is the is the best way to uh, make them better. Yeah, I agree. I think it's important to maintain kind of a a balanced perspective of, you know, the history of the place that you're, you're mm-hmm. raised in and, and you live in yep. because not doing so can lead to dangerous outcomes for sure. And, and this stuff all has ramifications right up to today. We, yep. we keep the 20 year rule, but I guarantee you, you go back in the last week of news stories, uh, you'll find multiple, Definitely. multiple stories where this topic will, uh, probably uh uh, add some insight into what exactly is happening there yeah also i think this is going to be releasing very close if not on uh february 18th which in manitoba is louis riel day where they Ah. celebrate the founding of their province and uh uh, by louis riel so um you know as much as in auto or in ontario where we grew up uh, i always kind of got the impression that he was kind of vilified to a certain extent Mm -hmm. that's not true all over canada he's he's got a, a complicated um uh, reputation even to this day. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I can definitely understand why now. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, more than, more than any other, uh, topic that we've done, uh, I am definitely not an expert on this stuff. I'm learning more every single day. Uh, I, I really encourage people to learn a little bit more on their own, uh, listen to someone who is actually indigenous. They've lived that experience and they, they know a whole lot more than I do. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think that's all I wanted to say on that. I know it's yeah. more extra at the end than, than usual, but this is a, 
little bit different topic than usual. So yeah, uh, for sure. Well, thank you for, um, for doing the research on this. I, it was really enlightening for me and yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you could come on and I'm glad you picked the topic. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't the easiest one to put together, but yeah, for obvious reasons, but, <laughs> but I'm glad we did it. I I'm, really appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad we put that out there. So yeah. um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. If the Confederation of Canada marks the end of the Canadian government's treatment of Indigenous nations as sovereign, the Red River Rebellion and Northwest Rebellion marked the last time those nations were able to muster the military force to defend that sovereignty. Already stifled by dishonored treaties, an unconstitutional Indian Act, and targeted cultural genocide, the rebellions gave the Canadian government the excuse it needed to impose further restrictions on Indigenous peoples that continue to damage those communities to this day. Next time on HI 101, we'll be talking about the Chinese Communist Revolution. February is a bit of a short month, so it may be a few days late, but part one should be up around March 1st. Since HI 101's format can result in some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post for each show there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed on there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. It doesn't just have to be about corrections. I look forward to hearing from listeners for any reason and respond when I can. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, you should start looking for more information yourself. No matter how much you enjoy the show, I promise you'll find even more good stuff out there. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.